Well, over the last couple weeks, I've noticed a little more traffic in Wilmore. You may have noticed it too. A specific kind of traffic though, up and down North Lexington Avenue in the middle of this tiny little town, I've noticed a lot of U-Hauls. You might have seen them. It's interesting in a town with only two stoplights and one gas station that we can support an entire U-Haul dealer. But we do. I'm pretty sure that most of their business comes in either August or May of each year. Because uh, the business of this town, this transitional community we live in, is a moving business. Uh, moving new students in every fall, moving new graduates out every summer, people coming to follow the Lord to seminary and leaving to take what they've learned in ministry to the world. Almost all of us will utilize that Wilmore U-Haul dealer at least once, maybe twice. I came to Wilmore for the first time in the late 90s as an MDiv student to sit where you're sitting. I had so few possessions, I didn't even need a U-Haul. I was single and traveling light with all of my worldly goods packed into my two-door white Ford Tempo. Now fast forward a few years to post-graduation, post-ordination, post 13 years pastoring in the local church, and I surprisingly found myself moving back to Wilmore two years ago to serve as dean of chapel here. Only this time when I returned, I brought a husband and two kids and a full-size Mayflower moving van. And I'm pretty sure it bulged around the sides with our possessions, and it may have dragged underneath just from the weight of all my books. <laughs> Uh, Wilmore's moving cycles are good practice for the cycles of discipleship because the call to follow Jesus is a transitional call. It's a call to move. Follow me contains an action verb. You don't get to follow and sit still. Um, the disciples didn't get to drag a U-Haul behind them, though. They were answering the kind of call to follow Jesus that meant traveling light, really light. They were asked to leave everything behind, to leave home and family and occupation. Get out of those boats, Jesus said, and follow me. Come with me and I will teach you to fish for people. And with all of that emphasis on leaving, on leaving their nets and leaving their families and leaving their lives, I've often wondered why do they keep ending up back in the boat? You notice that? So many of these gospel stories have the disciples back in a boat following Jesus somewhere. In fact, of all the miracles that Jesus performed, the only ones that he performed specifically for the disciples happened in boats. Not that the disciples didn't benefit from all the other miracles. I mean, they got to drink some of the wine at Cana. They got to eat some of the bread and the fish with the 5,000. They got to witness the miraculous everywhere that they traveled with Jesus. But the only times that the disciples were desperate enough to need a miracle themselves happened on the water. The only time Jesus performed a miracle just for the disciples, the impact clearly meant for them with no other witnesses, was when they were back in the boat with Jesus. I say they were desperate enough to need a miracle because that seems to me to be a common thread between miracles in the Gospels. 
miracles are about a powerful God, that's for sure, but the other side of the miracle equation is that miracles are also about desperate people. In the gospel, desperation precedes a miracle. I mean, think about it for a moment. When do Jesus' miracles occur? Someone is blind or lame or dead. Someone's child is sick or dying or demon-possessed. Thousands of people are hungry and there's nothing to feed them. Ten people are walking around with leprosy outcasts from their families and community. A woman is bent over. A man's hand is withered beyond recognition. A woman is bleeding. A child is dead. These are desperate people. Jesus is the miracle worker of those in despair, the savior of desperate people. After all, if you're not desperate, what do you need a miracle for? Desperation in the Gospels is a gift from God. It's the gift that teaches us that we can't do this on our own. And the disciples receive this unwanted gift smack in the face as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee after a busy day of ministry. It's Jesus who tells them to cross. I mean, it's his fault. Isn't it always Jesus' fault? It's his fault they're on the water at night and that that's when the storm hits. And considering the number of disciples who are experienced fishermen, those who have spent most of their life on this very lake, who've gone through so many storms, considering that one of them was probably even the owner of this boat, considering just how scared these grown men are, this must have been a powerful storm. And that makes it even more amazing that Jesus slept right through it. As a storm gets worse and their anxiety gets higher and their fear takes over, the disciples do what frightened and threatened people often do. They blame. They lash out at Jesus for his apparent lack of concern for their well-being. Teacher, they say, don't you even care? Don't you even care that we're perishing, that we're being destroyed while you take a nap? It's your fault that we're out here in the first place, on the lake, in the dark, in the storm, and you're more concerned with getting your beauty sleep than with our lives? And, and while this miracle story is told in three Gospels, it's only the Gospel of Mark that mentions one little detail that I love. The cushion. The cushion on which Jesus is resting his head while the boat they're in is about to do a titanic imitation. Go down for the count. The cushion. I love Mark for little details just like this. He was in the stern, Mark tells us, asleep on the cushion. Not a cushion, the cushion. Jesus took it and went to sleep. This detail seems to sum up all of the disciples' anger at Jesus for his callous disregard for their safety. Jesus' cushioned head contrasted with their terrified state. This is the kind of thing that many of us say at one time or another in our lives when we find ourselves in danger or stress or grief or loss. When we cry out to God, but we don't feel heard. And we picture him, I don't know, eating bonbons on a cloud somewhere. 
detached, disinterested, while we struggle and suffer and weep. So many, so many of the Psalms have a portion like this. David cries out in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From my words of groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. You, God on a cushion, with your eyes closed while the world suffers, where were you when I needed you? Where were you when it happened? Were you asleep on your watch? Or do you even care? In all of this desperation, the disciples seem to have missed one thing, one little detail about the God on the cushion. It's his location. He is not far off or distant. He's in the boat with them, literally in the same boat. This is incarnation. For God to put himself in the same boat with us even and especially in the places of our greatest danger and fear. He is actually so close that they can shake him awake with their shouts and their cries. He's actually so compassionate that he takes care of the very thing that is causing them danger from the outside and anxiety from the inside with just one little word, peace. Peace. Be still. Who was he talking to when he commanded peace? Was he talking to the storm or to the disciples? Peace. Be still. Now, if you haven't figured out yet why I would want to talk to you here in this first chapel of a new semester, the second day of classes, about the calming of a storm for anxious people, if you don't know why this is important, let me share a little secret with you. Seminary can be a little overwhelming sometimes. I don't mean to alarm you, those of you who are new. It can be a little overwhelming. And, and most of the semester, I get to sit up here and stand up here, and I look into your eyes Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday during chapel, and I watch it happen. <laughs> the overwhelm. And I'm always surprised at how early it hits. Some of you, some of you right now, today, you have it already. <laughs> the overwhelm. I don't know what they did to you in class yesterday, but it's already here. Sometimes it's classes and syllabi and books. Sometimes it's life and family and relationships and bank accounts and questions about life and calling and about God himself and whether you're worthy or competent, or smart, or holy enough to even sit in that pew. Your faith may feel a little stormy at times in seminary. Even as you're studying God, you may cry out to him like the disciples and wonder if he's even listening, wonder if he's even there. But let me say this, being one who studies God or works in vocational ministry for God does not exempt you from facing the tough questions and the tough times in your faith. Any more than being an expert fisherman exempts you from the storm. Storms strike those who are experts on the water just like they do the novices. Sometimes I think it's harder for the experts 
because they don't think the storm is coming for them. And to tell you the truth, here in this lovely place with all our degrees and our letters and our regalia, there are no experts at God. Only children of God, worshipers of God. I mean, did you really think you could master divinity? <laughs> really? I will, thank you. <laughs> one reason, just one of the many that we show up here in this room, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that we serve communion on this campus Monday through Friday, here on Wednesday in Fletcher Chapel, all other days of the week. One reason we worship so much is to put ourselves back in our place as a worshiper, child, novice, to hear again, peace, be still, not just spoken to the storms around us, but spoken to the storms in us, to remind ourselves that those who we live in community with, those who God calls into deep waters in the middle of the night, those who are frightened of the storm, have to worship to realize that God is in the boat with us, even in the dark, even when the winds are high. Now, I could just stop the sermon there and we could all go to lunch early. Wouldn't that be great? Here's a secret. When a preacher says that, they're lying to you. It's a trick. I could just stop the sermon here and what that might imply about what it means to travel in the boat of the Christian faith to cross, faith, to cross the waters with Jesus is that this is a constant journey from the dangerous to the safe. That Jesus is something like your pet poodle traveling with you in one of those little purses they make to carry a little dog around in. That you just keep him under your arm all day and you can be certain of him bringing you to a constant place of betterment and safety, whispering peace over the storms and stilling every little problem as you get continually more peaceful, more prosperous, and more successful in life. Don't you wish I could stop there? And that would be a great ending if it were true that the Christian life is always a journey from the dangerous to the safe. That's what people seem to think the gospel teaches sometimes, isn't it? That the life of a follower of Jesus is safer and more secure than the life of the one who doesn't follow Jesus? Tell that to the disciples. That might have worked, but the calming of the storm is not the only miracle on the water that the disciples experience. To quote classic Star Wars, there is another. No, most of you weren't alive yet when that movie was made, so I'll move on. There is another. The other miracle in the boat is, of course, Jesus walking on the water. This time, it's night again, and Jesus has been teaching all day and doing ministry with them all day again, and Jesus sends them off to cross the water by boat again, and there's a storm again, only this time he doesn't go with them. There's another storm with rough winds and a boat far from land, battered by the waves, and they've left a busy day of ministry with the crowds, but not Jesus. He's stayed back for some alone time, perhaps not even giving the disciples a clue about how he would catch up with them later, not telling them that his mode of transportation to catch up with them would be a little 
unorthodox. Can we call Jesus unorthodox? No, probably not. Strike that. So when they see him walking out on top of the waves like it's no big deal, they are terrified, truly frightened this time, not by the power of the storm, but by the power of Jesus himself or whatever power this is. You see, the sea was known to be a dwelling place of evil, of evil spirits and forces. Just as the heavens were God's realm, the sea was filled with the unpredictable forces of evil. So for Jesus to tread on the sea had deep significance. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, they said when he calmed the storm. But now who is this that walks out over evil? He treads on the force that has compelled them to fear without any fear himself. And they really wonder that. Who is this? Is it a ghost? I mean, how many physical bodies have you seen walking out on water? A ghost might have been a more predictable solution for them. And Jesus sees how frightened they are, and this time he calls out to them, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Three Gospels tell this story, and they all say it the same way. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And that little phrase in the middle, it is I, is literally this. I am. Take heart. I am. A phrase that God loves to use to identify himself when calling and calming his people. If they were listening through their fear, they would have been transported back to the burning bush where a voice spoke to a frightened Moses and declared that I am was about to save his people. That I am would be walking with God's people across another sea, not on the water, but through it. Jesus is I am. And I am is on his way to his frightened people. And then there's Peter. Don't you love Peter? Peter calls out from the boat, Lord, if it's really you, I mean, come on, Peter, who else is it? If it's really you, let me come to you on the water. And this is where Peter really messed me up. Because miracles are for desperate people. I said that, didn't I? Desperation precedes a miracle, but Peter doesn't seem to be in a desperate situation here. If you didn't know better, you would think this was just some kind of party trick. Peter's desire to step out on water. Hey, look, guys, look at me doing what Jesus does. But remember, Peter's a career fisherman. He's spent his entire life around and on this lake in fear and awe of the same water carefully making sure that he never puts himself in a position just like the one he's about to, stepping out of a boat, overboard, into a storm at night without any guarantee that he's coming back. So when Peter calls out to Jesus, let me come to you, I hear desperation. He's watched that water with fear his whole life, and now there's a chance he can walk right over the thing that he's feared the most. This is a different kind of desperation from the cries of the disciples in the storm. Lord, save us. In the storm, the disciples begged Jesus to move them from a place of danger to a place of safety. Peter is asking Jesus to move him out of safety and into danger. 
He sees Jesus on the water. He's desperate to be with him, to do the things Jesus does, to conquer the things that Jesus conquers. Peter's is a different kind of desperation, a desperation not to live life in a boat when there's something better out there, not to keep sailing in his own strength and competency and old patterns when just for the asking, he can step out into his weakest place and find Jesus' strength. The miracle of the calming of the storm is a movement from a place of risk to safety, but the miracle of Peter walking on the water is a miracle of movement from a place of safety into risk. This is why you're here. This is why you brought your U-Hauls or your two-door Ford or your Mayflower moving van packed with books to this little one-U-Haul dealer town, two stoplights, one gas station, to give your life to something that your friends and family back home probably don't even understand yet. Because you knew the boat would get you to the other side safely, but you'd rather take a risk. You'd rather walk with Jesus. He was calling you out of safety of what was predictable and comfortable and onto the waters of ministry where you'll still be tempted to play it safe, <laughs> to follow a career path instead of a calling, to do business as usual in the church and the mission field, to fill your calendar so full of monthly committee meetings that there's no time to listen for that call to step out of the boat, that voice that's calling us to sail our churches straight into rough waters to reach the people that are drowning there. So let me say it again. Jesus is the miracle worker of desperate people. Are you there yet? If you're not desperate, what do you need a miracle for? So keep asking for that calling of holy risk. Ask him what he has next for you. What's the next step, Jesus? What's the next? If it's you, Lord, if it's really you, let me come. And if you want to talk to someone who has risked it all, talk to Jesus. He left a place of safety for a place of risk. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus didn't play it safe. He saw you. He saw us. He saw the world in need, and he stepped out on evil treading toward us for the world crying out to him over the very evil that tried to take us from him. And he cried out in the same boat of flesh that we do, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So maybe you're in a stormy life needing comfort, or maybe you're in a comfortable place needing a life. <laughs> Jesus is there. He is not God on the cushion. <laughs> far off with no understanding of your pain or distress, your anxiety, your grief. He's God in the boat. 
treading on the dangerous place of evil to get to us. He's God at the table. He's God on the cross. Thanks be to God. Amen.